In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 23. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. We're excited to present the final chapter of Dear Laura this week. I want to extend a huge thanks to the team that worked on our production of Gemma's great story. Phil's production, Brandon's score, Kristen and Mary doing the lion's share of the outstanding voice acting. I'm immensely proud of it. We're looking forward to doing similar serialized tales in the seasons to come. So... As always, brace yourself for those stories we can't wait to tell. But, as we learned last week, some stories shouldn't be told. That's what our corrupted files kept saying. And for a few days, they wouldn't stop. It plagued the entire team, even people who work on the show outside of audio. The editors, artists, writers, the phrase was appearing in their work written there, or in one alarming case, painted on a physical canvas used for a cover art. When I opened what I thought was a completed episode file on my PC, only to be met with the same words delivered in my own goddamn voice, I confess, I lost it. All I've been doing this whole time is what I'm told. Telling stories that struck me, infected me, wouldn't leave me. How could I decide which one should or shouldn't be told? I understood the concept I had done for some time now. Dotted throughout all the stories humanity's told over the years, fact and fiction are warnings. Warnings placed into people's heads to share with the rest of us, to prepare us for potential horrors and concepts, to ease us into acceptance, to enable us to fight back by having the ability to conceptualize horrors that would otherwise be beyond our imaginations. But we know all that already. We've been warned of this time and time again in stories. Over the course of human history, we've had prophets, we've had religion and faith, we've had fable and folklore, and we've had parallels between fact and fiction. We all know by now that true warnings are hidden in our entertaining lies. That couldn't be all this was for. To make me tell those stories, I was already doing that. And now I was being accused of telling stories that shouldn't be told by telling the ones I was told to tell? Infuriating. And so I yelled all this in response to the voice. And then, as if via a call, the voice responded. But you haven't only been performing the stories I needed you to. What about the others? The infected ones? Infected ones? What? 
Some of your stories, they had words woven into them, designed to attack my own, designed to silence my scream. The warning, something's coming, and they weakened it. Weakened the thing you've also been helping to create. We don't understand. Which stories? I feel a compulsion, I perform them. Just like with yours. They're all the same. You guide me, I perform. Nothing's changed, unless there's another player. You're the only player here, and I am your guide. You're battling yourself, destroying your own work. You're claiming to be our benefactor, Boston Coleridge, yes? Yes. <laughs> then I call bullshit. Because you'd know about Joanna. I'm not the only player. She's helping you... Helping Boston, too. Helping us tell these stories. No, I am Coleridge. Cummings, listen to me. We're all in grave danger. There is no other help. I only enlisted you. There is no Joanna. There is only my cry for help. Silenced by the whisperer in the night. I think he means me. <sighs> Everything is calm for now. Next week will be the final update of what happened with Joanna. Where things go from here, I don't know. But the following story is approved by our benefactor. I don't know how or where he was contacted by Antonio Fernandez, the person who crafted this tale. But I do know that only the excellent voice work of Graham Rowett, Sarah Thomas, Jeff Clement, and Atticus Jackson could bring it to life. And although their tales are as old as horror itself, there is much you can learn about them from this story. Yes, a vampire story. Perhaps to you, this one seems a little familiar. Vampires don't work the way they do in movies. They aren't human. Never were. They don't resemble us in any way, or want to drink our blood or turn into bats. You can't kill them. Garlic and holy symbols don't work, and I'm not even sure where you'd put the stake. Maybe vampire's the wrong word. What my experience tells is the story of some sort of intelligent parasite. I don't think it's magic I experienced. Not in the traditional sense, anyway. To some, it may look that way. I think it's something in the world or universe that we don't know how to explain yet. Like there are beings and things out there that defy our knowledge, because we simply can't describe them with our limited primate brains. I might be a country bumpkin, but I'm educated. I even wanted to be a writer when I was little. I read a lot of horror books. Those always jumped out at me the best. 
There was this guy, Lovecraft, that had a running theme in his stories that the human mind is incapable of grasping reality as a whole. If you describe God to someone as a being that always existed, they're bound to ask you what came before God. You might respond with, there was no before God, he always was. Then they'll just rearrange their criticism and say something like, well then, who made God? On and on until you both get tired of talking about it. Some stuff we just can't wrap our heads around. Like the concept of always was and always will be, or higher dimensions than the ones we can see, or the idea of nothing. This letter, or essay, or whatever you want to call it, has been a long time coming. I've done horrible things. Truly terrible things. I'm writing this because it's eating me alive in more than one way. Or maybe it's him. I tried to keep it in. First from guilt, then from mercy. I don't want to expose the world to this. Then my guilt and mercy changed places over the period of a few months, squeezing by each other like tiny, oily beads in a water hourglass. Now it's slipping out, and I can't stop it. I don't want to. Kinda reminds me of those old action movies where the hero grasps someone just by the fingers and they want to save them by pulling them up, but they just don't have the strength. My secret's kinda like that. There's a small part of me that wants to hold on to this secret. Another part, smaller still, wants to hold on to the possibility of eternal life. But I can feel it slipping out of my grasp. And I know when it finally falls, I'll feel that sense of relief. I'll finally be able to pull myself up and stand on my own, not having to support the weight of two people. Because that's what it is, if I really think about it. Two different versions of my own life in my hands. Like binary stars that spin with each other out in the dark. In one of my lives, I'm a sheriff's deputy. I work in Indiana, I don't mind telling you, but I probably shouldn't be more specific. Swore to uphold the law. Meant every bit of it, too. I always wanted to help people. Even when I was a kid playing cops and robbers, I always preferred playing the cop. I've done stuff as a cop I'm not proud of, too. Don't get me wrong. But mostly I've done right by myself and my god. If there is such a thing. But if there is a god, I don't think he watches out for me anymore. I know I wouldn't. For the last three years I've been something's familiar. Not my word. Or some folks on the internet call it a proxy. You probably wonder what that is. It might help to give you some context, though. Please, God, don't judge me for this. I just need someone to listen. And I can't tell it anywhere in my first life. There was a routine traffic stop back in winter of 2016. It was February, and by and large it had been pretty mild up to that point. But this one night it was cold as hell. One of those nights that didn't snow, but it was just made up of cold and wind and dark. 
It hurts the skin just to step out into it. I'm just floating around on some rural highway a few minutes after 11 and spotted a speeder. There were little pinpricks of light on the horizon all around. Farmsteads scattered around frost-blasted wasteland that would become cornfields in the summer. I hit his pickup with my blues and he pulled over. I called in on my radio that I was getting a speeder. I would let him off with a warning so long as they didn't show any warrants. I always was pretty easy with folks just trying to get around. But with icy conditions, I'd rather they drive away feeling paranoid about getting pulled over again than hit a patch of black ice that erases them from their family's life forever. I'm a family man myself. Got a wife and a then 18-month-old. I get it. I step out and it hit me. A blast full on in the face. A wall of sub-freezing air. I heard myself let out an audible groan at it. I was dressed warmly, but you can only dress so warm. My hands were freezing through my gloves on the way to their truck. I shined my flashlight around the bed of their truck a bit. Some logs, red gas can, probably full, and a big-ass stainless steel tool chest. Before the driver's window, I stopped and tapped on the metal frame with my mag light. It was a four-door, back two seats empty-ish. The only two passengers were in the front seat. Kid in the passenger seat was maybe ten, a blonde boy. Looks like he could be my kid after another handful of years. Evening, folks. How fast do you think you were going? It always came out all blended together like that. Hey. Yeah. We were going kind of fast. I'm sorry. Young girl. Probably 16. Her hair was light and hay-colored, just like the boy. Obviously siblings. Looked familiar, too. This your truck? No. It's my dad's. You don't have to be nervous. Your hands are shaking. Just take your time. <laughs> uh, no. No, it's just cold is all. The cab still felt warm. But I was tempted to stick my head in and get a little of that. She was avoiding eye contact. She was still trying to comply so quickly. It was all really endearing. She let out a triumphant sound and handed me over her license out of her purse. Here. The bag was pink and white tiger stripes with all kinds of flecks of rhinestones or bedazzles or whatever the hell you call it. A kid's bag. I took the ID and looked it over. Everything was on the level. Her name was Judy. The truck was registered to her dad and went to my church. We weren't buddies or nothing, but I'd spoken with him a few times, and he always seemed nice. I remember thinking on more than one occasion that his life seemed like mine, just ahead a step. Like if I kept on, it would be where he is one day. Not that he left too much to be desired. I'm pretty happy where I'm at. But it was kind of like I had a glimpse of the future, you know? 
Her father's proof of insurance listed her as a driver. It was all good. Is this your first traffic stop, Judy? She kind of relaxed when I used her name. Her shoulders dropped a little and she let out a sigh like an old train letting out pressure. She'd been holding her breath. She smiled in a placating way. Yes, sir. Oh, you don't have to go on with the sirs. I know your dad from church. You're going a little fast is all. I'm gonna let you off with a warning, don't worry. I just gotta run your information. Just a formality, you understand? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Her features seemed to melt with relief. Then something else in her face. Like pride, maybe. Pride like this is normal adult stuff. She was in her own small way joining a new class of people. The adult class. Maybe she was just smiling to be polite, though. I pointed my flashlight at the boy and made my tone more jovial. What about you, Hefe? You smuggling anything I need to know about? Just guns and drugs. He didn't miss a beat, that one. His sister gasped and slapped him playfully across the legs a few times. Sibling stuff. She chided him in a whiny, almost childish tone. I couldn't make out what they were saying. I laughed my ass off. <laughs> okay. Well, as long as you got a permit. He tried to retort with something else clever, but I had to get to it. I could feel my balls burrowing into my chest. I hiked back to the car. My boots crunched ice as I went. It was a satisfying sound. I get back to my car and open her up. I slide into the seat and close the door behind me with a thunk of finality. My intention's just to warm my hands. I'm not gonna find anything looking up this kid's record. I just want to give these kids enough of a scare to make them safer. This is the part of the story where someone is supposed to say, then something strange happened. Except it didn't feel strange at the time. It felt very natural, despite how it may sound. Sort of like a dream. You might wake up or describe a dream to someone else, convinced of its vividness and its universality, but nothing can compare to the experience itself. The bulk of the experience was in the feeling. Something was there, then. It didn't approach, or arrive, or show up, or pop into existence. It was just there, like it always had been. There's a part of me even now that sort of believes maybe it's a part of me, and not some sort of being. But I know better. It was there. And it was serious, stern, uncompromising. As I sat there in the warmth, I just held the girl's ID and paperwork in my hand. I was supposed to be typing in the girl's information, or at least radioing in that it turned out to be nothing. But I didn't touch anything. Not a single muscle desired to move. 
because he was here now. I remember smiling warmly, as if to myself. It was a nice feeling, having him around. It felt like meeting up with an old friend after being nervous for a while that they've changed too much, and finding out that you click just like you used to. I loved the feeling. I didn't want it to end. It was the best night. One of those rare nights that is so good that you feel sad that you won't get to relive it, or retell it and do it justice. Because it was in the feelings. Like a dream. He greeted me fondly, as old friends do. His voice was sweet and strong, and came from no direction in particular. I'd never met him. Not personally. But I've gotten tiny fragments of him throughout my whole life. My first bite of cotton candy. The smell of fresh leather. Sex with the woman you love. The purity of breathing in your infant son's smell. He was potent, unerring, unbending. Like love, or the inevitability of death. He wanted me to get the girl's cell phone. Okay. <laughs> he let me know that I was his now. And I didn't have to worry about not being his anymore. Not in words, necessarily. But certainly in a voice. His voice was bizarre, but only in retrospect, like it came from a direction I was unfamiliar with. Not up or down, left or right, or back or forward, but some other way. Thank God. He was pleased by this. I was happy because he was happy, and we shared our happiness with each other. Not in the way any human relationship can, but in the way gravity is shared between binary stars. Interconnected and persistent. I didn't even notice the cold on the way back to the truck. Nor did I remember stepping out or tapping shave and a haircut on the driver's side. The window gave a crackle and a long drone when it went down. Another pleasant burst of warmth from within. Hey, I just forgot. I'm just all kinds of turned around today. Sorry about that. No, it's fine. I'm gonna need your cell phone for a few minutes. I beamed widely at her. Don't forget her keys. And your keys. Her face was alarmed. Her eyebrows pressed together with worry. What's going on? Did your computer say something? Oh, no, no, no. Nothing like that. Just one more thing I gotta finish up is all. No point worrying her before she has to be. Oh. Her face was concerned. With confusion, she handed over her iPhone with a frilly pink case. She didn't want to. She was afraid of me. But she complied. Okay. I just never heard of anything like that before. She rolled the window most of the way up and turned the key. 
The engine flatly joined the silence around it. She pressed the key through the slit at the top of the window, and I took it. No problem. I'll have you along your way before you know it. I turned to the boy. Better safe than sorry. What about you, big deal? You have a cell phone? No. He wasn't afraid or confused. Children are used to complying with all kinds of stupid adult-shaped requests. Even dangerous ones. Okay, y'all sit tight. I'll be back in a jiffy. I walked back to my car again. I actually felt excited. Thinking back on the feelings makes me sick. He felt I was doing beautifully. He was really proud of me, the way a father is at the birth of his child. I was so happy to know how he felt. He made me an offer then. One more thing left to do. He would give me something no one ever has or would offer me again. Something impossible. Something quite rare, he assured me. He was going to honor me with the gift of eternal life. I stammered on no words. I was speechless. You don't have to do that. No, really. It's too generous. I'll do anything for you. You know that, right? I hope you don't think you have to buy my love for you, man. It's you and me. Seriously, I got you. But he wouldn't take no for an answer. He was always so kind that way. He always was. Uncompromising. I threw the girl's cell phone and keys into the woods somewhere on the right side of the road. In my enthusiasm, I pulled my shoulder. It wrenched sharply and painfully. The girl's stuff made a thin, high sound as it landed in the darkness, clattering across the ice-hard ground. I could see her eyeing me in the rearview mirror. She seemed confused. Not offended or scared. So she probably didn't really know what I was doing. I approached the truck again. I reached out my offhand for the handle of the truck, while my right fetched my handcuffs from my patrol belt. The latch lifted limply as I pumped it a couple of times. It was locked from the inside. Go on and unlock that door for me, please. My tone was calm and authoritative. A policeman's tone before trouble begins. I followed her eyes down to where my hands were now removing the cuffs from their leather casing. She made a sort of non-verbal gasp with her hands, throwing them up, fingers spread out dumbly. Surprised, for sure. My dad should be here, I think. I need to call my dad, I think. I'm a minor. Her chin was now wrinkled and quivering. There was a layer of fresh tears forming around the fringes of her eyes. I looked over to the boy. He was only just arriving at the conclusion that something was wrong. He looked confused, but little else. He was exhaling vapors as the temperature in the cab continued to drop. 
We'll get your daddy out here, don't worry. You just gotta open the door. My voice was less soothing now. More authoritative. But not yelling. I don't really tend to yell. Then the strangest thing happened. She leaned over and unlocked the door. Even though she was scared and already seemed to know this wasn't going to be a normal speeding ticket. I was a cop. The rules of society dictated that little white kids with everything to lose and their whole lives ahead of them listen to what cops tell them. Hell, in Indiana, most decent folks tell their kids, you only have to listen to three types of people. Your parents, the doctor, and the police. I wielded that trust against them. Once I heard the muted pop of the lock disengaging, I tried the handle again. The token resistance of an unlocked door, then the satisfying release. I smoothly swung it open and the cabin lights came on. The rhythmic dinging of the door chime yelled warnings. I moved quickly and assertively. I took her left arm and clapped one end of the cuffs around her wrist. She didn't even resist as I looped the other end of the cuffs through a gap in the steering wheel and asked for her right hand. With her hands like that, she wouldn't be able to leave the truck. Give me your other hand. No, 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 no! Paradoxically, she volunteered her right wrist. I don't know what the hell your computer thing said, but it's wrong! She was crying now. Thin strands of tears made little glossy impressions in her cheeks. Her breathing had become ragged with crying. I'd seen it all before. It was about now that the boy got more than a little scared. I crossed around the front of the truck, something I never do, really. It was making my way around to the passenger side. The ice was hard and slippery and popping underfoot, so I moved slowly. The boy's door popped open, and he started taking off running back towards my squad car. Clear line of sight. She tried to convince her brother to comply, but he was a young boy and prone to bouts of unpredictability. But I was fast. I drew from my belt. I looked down the yellow and black stripes. I painted a red light on his back and pulled the trigger. He didn't have a chance. Twin wasps sprung from my taser with a pop and found the flesh even through his thin hoodie. There was a loud snap, 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 snap as I held the trigger down, sending vicious pulses of debilitating amperage into him. It pumped through him like venom, making him shake and convulse as I approached. I ejected the cartridge and loaded another. Force of habit. But he was still there. He enjoyed that. Needed it wanted more and asked me as such. I asked him what he thought I should do. What should I do? And he told me. From nowhere I was familiar with. I approached the boy, who was now on the ground, weeping face down with his hands covering his mouth and nose. Narrow rivulets of blood ran over his knuckles and onto the ice. He was actively crying as I put my knee in the center of his back 
and forced his arms behind him. I had a secondary set of cuffs in the same pouch that I tightened as far as they would go around his wrists. Then I helped him to his feet. Come on, fella, get up. He was limping and crying all the way back to the truck. I was only then aware of the shouting and honking. The sister, Judy, was going absolutely nuclear. She was struggling and screaming at me. She begged me. She begged me. Let me stop here. I just want to say something. I'm not telling you all this detail because I think it's cool to, because I'm proud of it. I'm not. I'm well aware of how absolutely horrifying it is. The thing I did can't be undone. I don't tell you this for your benefit. I tell you for mine. I don't want it anymore. None of the details. I'm passing over every grain of sand in my blood-soaked hourglass so you can see exactly how I spent my time. I'm a fucking monster. I need you to know all the details so you don't make the mistake of trying to relate to me or feel sorry for me. He didn't force me to do anything. No force was involved. Or not at least in the way I understand it. He barely asked me, and much of it I did without even being asked. I did it gladly, for the pleasure of serving him, and for the eternal life he promised. If I hadn't wanted it before, I wanted it now. To live forever. It was a cleverly constructed safety net below a fail-proof plan. If I ever somehow stopped wanting to serve him, then I couldn't see how that could ever be at this point. He would always have eternal life to dangle before me. But eternal life, he said, costs life. More importantly, eternal life costs pain. My brain seemed to coast. Thought was barely required to move my legs. As my brain instructed my hand to open the tailgate of the truck, or my arms to lift the red gas can... My body received it a millisecond earlier than it should have. The synapses in my brain were being helped along, and their roots were plotted for them. Whatever juices reside in the meat in my skull were damned and redirected in just the right way to facilitate my choices. But they were mine. Gas can in hand, I walked around the rear of the truck and circled back to the driver's side window, which still lay open a crack. The window itself was steamed opaque by the body heat within. He was thirsty. His mouth, if he had such a thing, watered. He wanted me to do it. But I knew he savored every moment of the build-up. I just knew. There was a small black plastic cap in the lid of the long nozzle. I hoisted it up and remembered painfully that I pulled my shoulder. Not even in the actual confrontation. I felt dumb. I'd have to have that checked out Friday, my off day. I slid the long plastic nozzle through the slit in the window. 
and upended the canister into the cab of the truck. She'd been screaming and loudly sobbing before, but when the high, sharp stench of gasoline came pouring out of the narrow gap, her fervor doubled. The boy lay there. He seemed horrified, but he didn't run. Dear Jesus, why didn't he try to run again? He might have made it this time. He just laid there. The can got lighter and lighter until it weighed hardly anything, and I set it on the roof of the truck. He was ready. I felt warm, like a hug. I felt the seed of doubt well up. What the hell was I doing? But he helped me through it. He plucked the sprout out of the soil and crushed it between his fingers. He wanted me to leave the doubt to him. I don't have to burden myself with choices like that. It's already been decided. Like the socks you were going to wear today. After you pluck them out of the sock drawer, you don't pay any mind to whether it's the right pair. It's just socks. It's decided. I moved on. My hands patted my vest, briefly grazed my belt, and plunged into my pockets. He reminded me what I needed. I wished I smoked. But he provided me an image of my trunk. It was a good idea. Especially since it was already decided. I turned around and started off towards my cruiser, my feet and hands starting to experience the numb of the evening air. He kindly reminded me that I would be warm enough in a moment. I got to my trunk and double-tapped the button on my key fob to open it. It popped up a half-inch to let me know it was disengaged. I hoisted it up and looked inside. The trunk was illuminated by the thin yellow of a single ancient bulb. I saw them. I grabbed two or three of them, vaguely wondering why they shaped them like tall candles, then closed the trunk. A car passed by, and the girl in the driver's seat laid on the horn. I couldn't hear her cry anymore over the wind, not until I got back to the truck window. He told me not to worry about the car. They had somewhere important to be. He was right. The car drove on. The girl's alarms went unanswered. Now that I was back at the window, I could hear her again. She'd been screaming so loud and hard that she'd torn her voice box to shred. Long gasps of polluted air were punctuated by hoarse barks. Tears streamed down her face. The boy still didn't move. Catatonic. were in bloody struggle against the cuffs. Little ribbons of skin and chunks of meat hung down. He was there then, focused on the wrists. Not looking, per se, but focused on them. He was focused on her throat and the boy's nose and foot. He urged me on, 
I was a duckling, and he was the father duck. Go on, little duck. I ignited the flare, and something inside that girl broke. She didn't try to scream anymore. She just breathed in sharp, uneven huffs. She was at peace. And he didn't like that. Not one bit. Just as the boy began to cry, I threw the flare through the small opening in the glass. I watched them for a long time. No other cars came. I stood back and shielded my face from the heat, even though he assured me I didn't have to do that. There, we drank together. He felt satisfied and lent me some of that satisfaction. I suddenly felt guilt and sorrow and remorse. Satisfied. We drank anyway. He was connected with them in some way at those last moments. He drank of the explosive stimuli from their nerves. He drank from the immolation with pleasure, as one would take from a sweet nectar. Their sorrow and after-dinner treat. It wasn't filling, but it was delicious. Though I couldn't taste it myself. I could share in his connection with them, and his connection with me. Like binary stars, I was tangled perpetually in his gravity, and he in mine. Just then, a flash. This wasn't sustaining to him. This particular meal wasn't even important. His selecting me had a dual purpose, he said. This was my test. He was impressed by my susceptibility. My weakness pleased him. And in a way, I was happy for it. But the real meal wasn't that. I felt in an echo as he finished feasting and the screaming halted. A bright, peripheral thought out of the side of his senses. The real meal was the pain that would be felt by Judy and Jace's parents. The pain he would be able to feast on for years to come. These days, the rather morbid but all-too-necessary job of burying human remains is accomplished with heavy machinery, the casket-sized holes being carved into the ground rather easily. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Liam Hogan, 
In the past, the task of digging a grave was done with a shovel and back-breaking labor, a task made more difficult by unexpected interruptions. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell and David Alt. So if you find yourself strolling through a peaceful cemetery, even at night, please be respectful of the grave digger. There's a sharp ring of metal against... What? A gravestone? A coffin? I jerk upright, listening over the moan of the wind. Then I'm out of my cot, reaching for the greatcoat slung across the back of the wicker chair, stooping to lift the army rifle from the bench. It's been a while since I've had to chase grave robbers from these grounds. Once it was my reputation as a marksman that stayed them from their sordid task. Now, now, there are other concerns, and the risks far outweigh the meager rewards. As I ease the door of the gatehouse open, cold air whistles in, ruffling the folds of my unbuttoned coat. From the depths of the dark room behind me, a sudden voice commands. Wait. I turn and level the rifle at the slim figure that steps into the slanted rectangle of bright moonlight, so I realize that I might see him more clearly. He completely ignores the firearm aimed at his midriff. You must give them longer. It will take them some time. The ringing is louder now that the door is open. A metallic beat over the familiar anguished howls. The undead. His lips purse in distaste. This is 1913, Mr. Sanger, not the dark days of primitive superstition. They are not the undead. Never were, and perhaps never will be. I feel my grip tighten on the stock of the Lee Enfield, and ease a finger towards the safety. What are they doing out there? Merely digging up one of their own. You buried Elizabeth Marshall today, did you not? I did. In chains and under concrete? Yes. Then, as I said, it will take them a while to release her from her binds. They are not, alas, as coordinated as you or I, Mr. Sanger. I stare at him, standing there, once again making free with my name. And you are? (laughs) Forgive my rudeness. I should have introduced myself, but then I doubt you would be willing to shake my hand. Perhaps a lowering of that rifle will serve instead. I keep the rifle where it is. You are one of them? He tilts his head slightly to one side. If you like. They, we, are not all simple beasts. It depends on the exact progression of the virus. In some, indeed in most cases, it causes a rapid swelling of the brain, leading to coma and permanent damage to all but the most basic functions the need to eat, the fear of pain, a desire for the company of their own kind. In others, the effects are less severe. They retain a basic level of intelligence, the ability to understand commands, a distorted and painful memory of what they once were. In rare cases such as mine, 
the patient retains all the capacity for thought they ever had, and gains much more besides. Gains? What gains? Come, Mr. Sanger, you have seen enough to know the answer to that. Immortality. Or as close as we are ever likely to get. He takes a step forward, the rifle all but forgotten, daring me to disbelieve him. Strange, is it not? Something medical experts have sought with such passion down the ages. How vehement their reaction against it, against us. They should be working to cure the unfortunate side effects, rather than trying to eradicate the disease, rather than trying to destroy the afflicted. I'd hardly call that standing by their sacred oaths, would you? The afflicted are classified as legally dead. And yet, unlike others of your increasingly numerous profession, who separate the head from the neck, burying it at the corpse's feet, or who rush to cremate the comatose, you choose the infinitely more laborious method of internment. Why is that, Mr. Sanger? Is this why I am still alive? Is this the riddle that stays his hand, that stops him from killing me in my sleep? I am a grave digger. It is not my place to pass judgment on those I bury. I merely ensure that once buried, they stay buried. Hence the chains, hence the concrete, my usual precautions in these troubled times. He raises an eyebrow. You do not approve of what my friends are doing out there? No, I do not. Let no one say I do not do my solemn duty without the due care and diligence it deserves. Don't worry. They will fill in the grave once they are done. That is hardly the point. Is it not? Then perhaps we can save each other some effort in future. The people you are burying, they are not dead. If the bodies were not interred with such indecent haste, you would have evidence of that for yourself. But the law dictates that once some ill-informed quack, unable or unwilling to detect the frail pulse of someone in a coma, signs the notice of decease, then the services of a gravedigger must be employed very well. Employ them we shall. But if the coffin were empty... I do not think the Reverend... The Reverend will join our ranks by this time tomorrow. The bandage he wore on his arm this afternoon covers a nasty bite. And one he well deserved, Mr. Sanger. He is not as respectful of the dead or the living as you are. I take in this startling news. May God rest his soul. The moonlit figure tucks. You forget... He is not dead. He will not die. And though God has nothing to do with it, I, a mere mortal, may yet influence his fate. Decide if he should retain his faculties or join those unfortunates he lacked the compassion to pray for and who are incapable of praying for themselves. And how would you go about that? How do you play at being God? He ignores my jibe. I was a medical man before. I would be again given the chance. Prompt action is required. Ice, cooling the body, reduces the swelling of the brain, prevents the injury it causes before the virus puts a stop to apoptosis. I look at him blankly. I don't... There's a pause, a moment of silence, 
from both within the gatehouse and without. Then the ringing begins again, erratic now. Apoptosis. The Greek for falling away. What your cells are programmed to do, Mr. Sanger, when damaged, when attacked. It is not the lack of oxygen, the invasion by a virus, or the cold grip of winter that kills. It is the cells themselves choosing to die. An imperfect and outdated process surpassed by modern science and one which this virus arrests. If you shoot me, you will do physical damage. You will destroy a small number of cells directly in the path of the bullet. A few thousands at most, maybe a million. But why should the death of so few cells lead to the death of the whole? Even if for a while there is no blood reaching my lungs, my brain, why should these organs not spring back to life the moment oxygen-rich blood does reach them? That is the blessing of this virus, one no doubt it employs for purely selfish reasons, protecting its host to guarantee its survival, its spread. God's will. Is tuberculosis God's will? Is cholera? If so, then this virus is also his will, and it is the duty of all who have the capacity of thought to treat the infected with respect. And yet the country convulses with fear, with hate. There is little I can do about that, Mr. Sanger. The number of us who, like me, can discourse rationally, who might argue our case, is few. So I ask for your help. And knowing that those you bury are not dead, how can you carry on as before? How can you still claim to be a reputable man? I bristle at that. This stranger in the night passing judgment on me, on my profession. If I were to let fly the bullets in my rifle, no court would convict me. To them, I would be shooting a dead man. I think for a moment. His intent is obvious. He aims to hold me here by talking, while the foul creatures in the graveyard go about their mindless business. He aims to allay my fears by allowing me to train my rifle on him. I wonder if it is even still loaded. How silently he must have crept into my room. If he wanted to dispatch me, he has already had plenty of opportunity. You understand, I cannot be seen to... Do not worry. We will be discreet. And when the time comes, if your time comes, we will move heaven and earth to make sure that you yourself are treated with the utmost care. I shudder. A reaction that amuses him. <laughs> Come, lower your weapon. Go back to sleep if you can. We will be well gone before sunrise, and you may consider this night a bad dream. In the morning, when the Reverend falls ill, you will offer to take over the duties of laying him and other unfortunates to rest. You will order in supplies of ice. Money will be provided. And you will leave me a set of keys to the Chapel of Rest. He takes a step forward, his eyes trained on me and another step, until the barrel of the rifle is a hand's width from his waistcoat. I lower the weapon, though I keep my hands firmly on it. What will you and your companions do? You will never be accepted here. He smiles. Even when we outnumber the uninfected? <laughs> but you are right. We will leave these lands. There is turmoil in Europe, the death throes of imperialistic empires. 
There will be war, Mr. Sanger, a war unlike any seen before. A war that cries out for a race of men less prone to injury, less fearful of death. Our war. We will prove our worth on the battlefields. I look on him in renewed horror. I saw action in the Second Boer War, learnt my trade there. And though this doctor claims to be a rational man, I find his posturing more frightening than even the thought of his lumbering friends out in the graveyard. Do you really think you are so indestructible? Have you no weaknesses at all? A cloud darkens his countenance. Whether cast by my scornful tone or I perhaps had chanced upon a sore spot, I could not tell. Medicine will catch up. There is already a cure for syphilis and more will surely follow. Science will conquer all of the ills, Mr. Sanger, even influenza. Even perhaps the virus that gifts us immortality. But then, why would we want to do that? There's a peal of staccato thunder as five metal shells drop to the floor around his feet and my finger convulses on the trigger of the empty rifle. When I look up again, he is at the door, staring at me with those eyes, those very distinctive eyes. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to attend to poor Lizzie. The woman you buried alive today is my sister. Did I mention that? He steps backwards into the night. I do hope she's not in too bad a state, Mr. Sanger. I really do. For your sake. It's an all-too-familiar scenario, an innocent young man having to deal with the injustice and indifference of a step-family. In this case, a stepmother and stepsister, neither of whom seem to pay much notice to poor Gavin. And in this tale, shared with us by author Christopher Stanley, we learn that attention is precisely what Gavin needs right now to help with an increasingly dire situation. Performing this tale are David Alt, James Cleveland, Penny Scott Andrews, and Erica Sanderson. So do your chores and get to work in the sink. Just make sure you don't encounter suds and monsters. Gavin stares at the thick layer of foam bobbing on top of the water in the sink. The way it moves, the gentle rise and fall, it could almost be breathing. His stepmom told him to do one thing before she left. Just do the damn dishes and don't make me ask you again. Even when she's out, her voice seems to follow him around the house, droning on about the many ways in which he lets his family down. Hardly a day passes without her complaining about his attitude or the amount of dirty laundry he's failed to put in the wash basket. 
and she hates it when he doesn't do the washing up. Behind him, there's a tower of dirty crockery on the island in the middle of the kitchen. Crusted plates from last night's bangers and mash. Sticky bowls from lunchtime's pasta. It's Gavin's turn to wash up, but it's just so boring. His parents used to be happy as long as he was playing quietly. Then his mum moved out and everything went to hell. He's about to put a dish in the water when something breaks the surface like a fish in a pond. He leans closer, watching a million tiny bubbles wobble and pop. There could be anything in the sink and he wouldn't know. He takes a carving knife from the block and carefully slices through the foam, but it doesn't help. He swishes it from side to side, creating temporary lagoons. He's beginning to think he was mistaken when, in one of the foamless gaps, he spots something sliding across the bottom. Something alive. Holding the knife two-handed, he counts down from five and stabs it into the water. Nothing. With his heart thumping in his chest, he raises it again, counts down and stabs. The tip of the blade finds the hard metal base of the sink, but nothing else. He lifts the knife one more time, studying the movement of the water, poised like a fisherman with a spear, lord of the suds, grand master of the washing up. And then he strikes, the blade slicing through the foam, water splashing up as far as his elbow, and something else, something slimy and unexpected, curls around his right arm and snaps tight. Gavin lets out a wail of surprise, and his voice comes back to him, echoing around the empty house. The thing, whatever it is, tugs him forward, pulling him into the sink. He fights it, thrashing and splashing soap suds everywhere, his shirt sleeves wet to the shoulder, his wrist singing with pain. He grabs for the carving knife, thinking he might be able to cut himself free, but the thing tugs him back into the sink, and the carving knife flies from his hand. His arm is pinned tight, his flesh stretched and squeezed until he's in too much pain to cry out. Blindly, he gropes with his free hand, clutching at the worktop, the washing machine, searching for anything with a decent edge, desperately trying to find enough leverage to pull his arm free. But the thing is too damn powerful. Upstairs, immediately above his head, the water pipes groan. His dad always blamed this on air in the system, but it doesn't sound like air. It sounds like anger. As the water drains from the sink, Gavin can see the thing more clearly, enough to know that it's some sort of tentacle, translucent and eel-like, that's punched its way through the plug hole. It stinks of rotting fish, pneumonia, a noxious cocktail that makes his stomach turn. He claws at it, digging his nails in, and it seems to be yielding when lights flash in his eyes and pain shoots up his left arm. The tentacle has bitten a deep triangle of flesh from the tip of his thumb. A single drop of his blood drips into what's left of the washing up water and hangs, suspended, blooming like a jellyfish. He stares in horror as a black, wiry hair sprouts from the side of the tentacle, looping towards his blood and sucking it up. More hairs start to grow, dozens of them, feeling for the pores in his arm and burrowing into his flesh. Each one hurts like a beasting and he cries out in agony. Blinking the tears from his eyes, he watches in horror as the hairs slide around under his flesh, searching for blood. The tentacle turns red and the room melts away. In its place is a mountain of throbbing, slimy flesh that spreads for miles in every direction. 
Vast creatures like nothing Gavin's ever seen slide over each other, their purple-gray tentacles coiling and uncoiling. A thousand eyes stare back at him, some as large as hot air balloons, others no bigger than marbles. The air is filled with the sound of wet flesh squelching over wet flesh. It smells of the sea and death. And the worst thing is, he can feel them. From the mighty thump of their hearts to the hungry tip of every tentacle. He can run his finger over their memories, born to conquer, trapped between dimensions, determined to rip through and wreak havoc. Soon, they will be everywhere. A fresh wave of pain drags Gavin back into the kitchen. Stop. Please stop. He tells himself this can't be happening. It can't be real. Every time he tries to pull himself free, the tentacle tightens its grip. He searches for a weapon, but can't reach any further than the plant pots and plastic jugs on the windowsill, or the tea bags and cereal boxes in the cupboard on the wall. Then he remembers the carving knife which he dropped to the floor earlier. He leans towards it, left arm outstretched, but he's nowhere near. When he decides to hook it with his foot, the millimeters between his toes and the blade might as well be miles. The kitchen starts to melt away again, and he can feel himself slipping back into the creature's world. He's halfway gone when the back door opens and his stepsister enters the house, lipstick pretty, coat buttoned up to her chin and carrier bags banging against her jeans. But if it's positive, I'm going to kill myself. Mum will freak if she finds out. You think I want his spawn growing inside me? When she sees Gavin, she cups her hand over the phone and whispers... Tell anyone, and I'll kill you. Becky. She holds her palm up to him, not even slowing down. Help me. Becky, please. She's already heading up the stairs, rattling a small cardboard box. As if my life isn't miserable enough. Oh, this is all I need. Gavin calls for her again, but his voice is too weak. He tugs feebly at the tentacle, but it won't budge. Through the ceiling, he hears his sister peeing into the toilet bowl, the noise going on and on, until she stops abruptly and starts to scream. Gavin hears water gushing, toothbrushes clattering and other noises that make no sense at all. Then everything goes quiet. He waits, hardly daring to breathe, hoping his stepsister will call out to reassure him that she's okay. But all he hears is a deathly thump which shakes the ceiling and causes dust to rain down from the strip lights. He shouts her name over and over until the water pipes growl threateningly in response. It's a deep, guttural moan that silences everything. Exhausted, he slumps against the kitchen worktop. You little bastard! Gavin opens his eyes and squints through layers of headache to see his stepmum in the kitchen a creased and faded version of her daughter, stubbing her cigarette out in a mug. After everything I've done for you, I asked you to do one thing, just one thing, and this is how you thank me. Look at this mess. The floor's all wet and the tower of crockery is as tall as it ever was. In the sink, the tentacle is still wrapped around his arm, but it's translucent again. Something else has slaked its thirst. His stepmum is oblivious to the tentacle. I'm going to do you a favour and tell you the truth. 
I don't want you here anymore. None of us do. You don't belong in this house. Help me. She picks up the carving knife and slides it across the worktop. Look at this. What have you been up to? He stares at her, remembering all the times she's made him feel unwanted, all the names she's called his real mum, and all the nasty little ways she's made his dad miserable. Like when she gave his CD collection to the charity shop because the songs are all on his computer now, and when she dropped his phone into his drink because he refused to delete his ex-wife's number. Enough, thinks Gavin. He could tell her there's a monster in the pipes. He could warn her about the imminent invasion. Instead... Becky's taking a pregnancy test in the bathroom. His stepmum freezes. Her eyes say, no, it can't be true. Not my daughter, not my precious, innocent, virgin daughter. Then she hurries through the lounge and disappears up the stairs. In the kitchen, Gavin takes a deep, steadying breath and reaches for the carving knife. As he prepares to cut himself free, he listens to his stepmom entering the bathroom. He wonders if she'll scream the same way her daughter did. If you're a parent who's raising your kids with the traditional fables, you know what I mean. Santa, the tooth fairy, that Easter egg laying rabbit. Then you know that you have a responsibility to create the illusion for your kids until they grow out of it. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, we meet parents who have made the mistake of not prepping the house properly for a beloved's arrival but they seem to be in luck when they find their work already done for them. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Aaron Lillis, Matthew Bradford, and Nicole Goodnight. So get those chocolates ready, hide the eggs yourself, and give your kids a fun day. Otherwise, you might find yourself facing something pretending to be the Easter Bunny. I woke up this morning to the sound of giggling coming from the living room. Crap. Clara shifted slightly in bed. (sighs) We forgot to set the alarm. I looked at the bag of Easter chocolates in the corner. We still needed to set up the egg hunt. Clara rolled over. We'll just... We'll we'll tell the kids the Easter when it got held up. Busy racing a turtle or something. Someone had to do damage control, and I could tell Clara wasn't going to get out of bed anytime soon. I tried going in for a kiss, but when I saw dried saliva crusted around her mouth, I changed my mind. Besides, she was already snoring by the time my face reached hers. Sighing, I left my cozy blanket and reached for yesterday's jeans, which were lying unceremoniously in a pile of dirty clothes next to the bed. As I stuck my legs clumsily through the openings, 
I noticed the clock. 3.16 a.m. My kids were never up that early, even on Easter. I turned to my wife. Babe, you're the best. Thanks for taking care of it, you sexy thing. Okay, I might have been a little irked at her. As I was about to exit the room, I heard a sound outside my door. At first, I thought it was David's padded cookie monster slippers, but the taps were followed by a clicking sound not unlike that of a dog's nails hitting the linoleum floor. I hoped the kids hadn't let the neighbor's flea-infested mutt inside again. I'd deduct half their Easter chocolate if that was the case. I knelt down and peered under the door to try and confirm my suspicions without letting the dog in. Fleas in the bedroom? No thanks. What I saw made me do a double take, which resulted in me slapping my cheek against the floor. It was no dog, that's for sure. The animal had elongated black feet, half covered in black patchy fur, half in blistering dark skin. On the edge of its bony toes were long claws clicking against the ground. What the f- fuck is that? My words carried through the paper-thin walls and startled the creature. It hopped out of sight, and I could hear it tap-tap-tapping all the way down the hall. Meanwhile, the turbo-engine snores continued behind me, unperturbed. I sat on my rump in stunned silence, wondering what kind of mangy animal had found its way into my home and how it had managed to do so in the first place. Judging by the size of its feet, it couldn't have made it through the cat's door unless it was a raccoon. Those jerks could get in anywhere. I was trying to come up with a plan of attack when I heard the kids giggling again. A pang of panic zapped through me like one of those prank handshake buzzers. The kids weren't safely tucked away in their beds. They were out there, with God knows what filthy beast had snuck inside. I grabbed the bat my wife kept on her side of the bed and dashed out of my room. Papa Bear mode activated. A warm and wet substance was waiting for me on the other side of the door, which I only noticed after stepping in it. Cringing, I looked down, hoping it wasn't a furball. The floor was covered in a thick brownish liquid, and my first thought was diarrhea. I could see it leading all the way down the hallway. What the hell kind of disease was this thing carrying? I prayed David and Becky were all right. Sidestepping the streaky liquid, I ran towards the living room. Becky, David, are you okay? As I rounded the corner, it took me a few moments to take in the scene, and I did so in multiple stages. First, I ignored the creature entirely, scanning the kids for any injuries. Next, I tried to figure out if they were in any immediate danger. Say, about to get mauled by a rabid mountain lion or something. Finally, I searched for the animal I had spied from under my bedroom door. The kids seemed fine and happy, nothing was actively moving towards them, and the creature was... Oh god... David was sitting on the horrid thing. The monster loosely resembled a hare, but it was far from an adorable woodland creature. 
Since it was seated, it was hard to gauge its exact size. But if I were to put a number to it, I'd say it was about four and a half feet tall. It emitted a strange and powerful odor, like chocolate laced with vinegar. The scent was so strong, it made my eyes water. Its body was grotesquely lean, like a starving animal in the middle of winter. Its fur was patchy, rigid, and looked to be covered in melted chocolate. The substance dripped off at the ends of its twisted whiskers and seemed to perpetually ooze out of its mouth. Its two buck teeth were rotten and chipped. Its ears looked mangled and were gnarled off at the ends. Its eyes were the worst, though. You know those creepy sugar eyes on Easter chocolates? That's exactly what they looked like. Soulless, unblinking, cartoonish eyes. David was sitting on this thing's lap. He had a big grin on his face, petting along its disheveled, gooey fur. His fingers made the sound of a slug racing down a slip and slide. Look, Daddy, the Easter Bunny's here. Becky reached up a hand to pet the thing's decrepit form. He's so soft. Something told me they weren't seeing the grotesque figure for what it truly was. I knew my kids. The sight of a cartoon monster could give them nightmares for weeks. There was no way they'd be so calm if they realized what they were playing with. Becky? David? Daddy needs you to come here. Daddy, we're playing with the Easter Bunny. I held my hands out to my children, trying my best not to let my growing panic show. I didn't know what the beast would do if it sensed danger, and I didn't want to freak my kids out. The rabbit's head turned towards me, but it was impossible to tell what exactly those unfocused eyes were looking at. It wrapped its short arms around David in a tight hug. I knew what it was thinking. It had no intention of returning my boy. My fingers tightened around my bat. Becky, Matilda, Carter, come here this instant. My daughter complied but gave me a bit of a pout. I didn't care. I needed to get her to safety, even if that meant looking like the bad guy. The rabbit hissed in response. Go to your room. Don't open the door unless it's me or your mom, okay? But Dad... Becky, now! Head held down, Becky dragged herself down the hall. I waited as my heart thrashed wildly in my chest, until I heard her bedroom door shut. For a split second, I felt relieved, but then the fear came flooding back when I returned my attention to the Easter Bunny. He was still hissing, chocolate syrup slowly drizzling along the top of my son's head. David, Sport, can you come here? I hoped he'd be able to squeeze out of the creature's bony arms. I took a step towards them, and the creature reacted by growling loudly and gripping my son tighter. David started crying. I stopped in my tracks, unsure of what to do. It was a standoff. Daddy, you're scaring the Easter Bunny. He won't give us any candy if you scare him. He continued to be pelted with more and more chocolate. 
I spread my arms out to him. That's not the Easter Bunny. Come here and we'll talk about it, okay? Daddy will give you more candy than Halloween and Easter combined, okay? David smiled and tried to get off the rabbit. The creature went absolutely wild, thrashing its head in about every direction while hissing and growling nonstop. Its thick brown saliva came flooding out of its mouth quicker than before, rapidly enveloping my son. I had to do something, but footsteps behind me caught my attention. Daddy, is the Easter Bunny sick? I think she was finally seeing the same thing I was. I didn't have time to scold Becky for coming back. In the moment it took for me to turn towards her, the creature managed to fully encase my son in a thick veil of melted chocolate. I could hear him gurgling and gagging as it quickly hardened around him. I ran towards the creature. Let go of my kid, you son of a bitch! My whole being cried out for an unrestrained act of violence. No one messes with my kids and gets away with it. I reared the baseball bat back and ran forward to swing at the creature. As I approached the monster, something strange happened to me. In an instant, all the anger seemed to evaporate from my soul. The sounds of my son gurgling, the creature hissing, and my daughter crying, it all disappeared. I could hear the chirps of spring birds and what sounded like a pleasant stream in the distance. In front of me stood a large, soft, white bunny with a basket full of eggs. I felt calm and at peace. If it wasn't for the fantastic force of physics known as inertia, I might have fallen victim to the illusion. As luck would have it, however, my action was already being executed, and my swing successfully followed through, striking the creature square across the head. An unearthly crackle echoed in the living room. My stomach twisted with worry. Hopefully I hadn't hit my son by accident. The next thing I knew, the bunny and its devilish counterpart were gone. In its place was a tall, hollow, and headless chocolate bunny. David was still encased in a cocoon of chocolate, but I quickly freed him while my daughter sobbed nearby. Thankfully, he was okay. I held him in my arms as though cradling a baby, feeling overwhelmingly grateful that both my children had survived. Once we had all calmed down, I started cleaning up the mess. In the corner of my living room, I found a pile of crushed chocolate, which I knew was the rabbit's head. The thing that really got to me were its eyes. You know how I said they were like solid sugar? As much as they crept me out when they were attached to him, they managed to completely horrify me when I found them lying amidst the rubble. I wasn't looking at fake candy eyes anymore. I was looking at appalling, stomach-turning, biologically accurate, round eyeballs, just like the ones in a high school science class. 
Now, I can't say for sure what I saw was the real Easter Bunny, or some sort of demon masquerading as him. Either way, I don't think I'll ever eat Easter chocolate again. Not now that I know what it's made of. If you have important documents you need to protect, what do you do with them? Filing cabinet? Safe? Or do you keep them buried deep underground in climate-controlled bunkers able to withstand any natural or man-made disaster? As we'll learn in this tale, shared with us by author Oliver J.T. Cromwell, these high-security facilities may be the perfect repository for all sorts of documents, but people still need to clean those spaces deep, deep underground. Performing this tale is Kyle Akers. So keep your head down, do your work, and don't go snooping around. And remember one thing, we are all just space dust. Small-town America. It's a pretty standard phrase. It conjures images of the same mom-and-pop diners, the same cookie-cutter houses, the same local shops and bars, and the same occasional town weirdo. Small-town drama, small-town folks, small-town life. Rest assured, we've got all that in my hometown, in spades. But you don't care about any of that. If you did, you could arrive at the nearest Podunk Hollow, and listen in at the new coffee shop established in 1995 as the locals talked about who slept with who after the last bonfire in the cow pasture. This story isn't something picked up while dropping eaves unless you already know where to look. Around here, neighborhoods seem to melt into one another with no official lines of delineation. The racetrack used to separate this from that, but it's a residential street now. A chemical plant halfway down the road is the boundary from here and there, but the houses look the same and the addresses haven't changed. Only the locals know the neighborhood names and how the individual personalities of each stomping ground mold and shape the personalities of the people doing all the stomping. For us, it's only natural to ask somebody who their parents are right after you're introduced. We likely know their mom or their mama's mom or their brother's high school sweetheart, and from that, we know that they are one of ours. We may never have met each other, but... Their dad and my dad grew up in West End together. I call their parents aunt and uncle and tell everyone they're my cousin. Their secrets are my secrets and my secrets are theirs. Neither one would dare betray the codes of conduct so flagrantly as to expose a member of their own. That's why we were the perfect place for something like the mines. They've got a proper name, of course, most things do. Most people around here just call them the mines and that's good enough for me. We all know exactly which mines you mean. We don't mean the coal mines. You never mean the steel mines or the limestone mines or the strip mines on the northwest side of town. You always mean the mines. The mines were limestone mines. 
than military medical storage, than offices and film sets and archive. Nowadays, it's said they're used for environmentally controlled storage of documents, storing vehicles and for office space. No more, no less. On paper, anyway. The locals have never been that concerned with paper, though. There's no map that'll tell you where those ever-important stomping grounds begin and end. No paper trail that will lead you to your cousin. No written word told us to guard our own so jealously. As far as the locals are concerned, paper means much less than the ash it will all one day become. The mines have always been much, much more than storage. The rumor mill in small-town America runneth over, of course, and I've heard that everything from Walt Disney's cryogenically frozen corpse to an entire underground colony of a subhuman species live in the mines, and that's why I was thrilled to take the cleaning job. From the mom-and-pop diner to the mysterious underground depository, everybody needs their floors mopped now and again. The front entrance to the mine looks like any other office building, if you completely ignore the fact that there's a mountain on the roof and there aren't any windows looking into the bland parking lot. I hear there's a receptionist and a tour and a chipper little sign that'll tell you the history of the space and everything. Wall sconces and floor lamps abound, apparently. They'll tell you that the air is naturally a comfortable 55 degrees Fahrenheit, 60% humidity. Sounds like you can almost forget you're standing in a place not meant for human traffic. I wouldn't know. Our keycard was for the back door, the truck door. The entrance not made for selling anything or convincing anyone that being a tenant wouldn't be all that bad. Through the back door, you don't see any of the plasterboard hallways and drop ceilings. There aren't any 70s mod lamps or any low-pile sensible carpets. You see the earth, painted stark white and gleaming, slick in the overhead fluorescent lights. Lights that flicker every now and then, if only to remind you that they are the only thing standing between you and the cloying, smothering dark native to this place. Every sound you make is hushed, pressed down upon you as though breaking the silence would also break something far more fragile. If asked, the folks working in the back will tell you that you get used to it. You never forget you're underground, but you strike a tenuous allyship with the dark in a desperate clamor for survival. You and the dark both know that it could wipe the slate on which the very heart of you has been written clean in the span of a blink of an eye. That momentary surrender of light we all take for granted. But you begin to trust the generator and the backup generator and the backup backup generator enough to only keep two flashlights in your lunchbox. I never brought a flashlight. When we took the first walkabout of the offices we were to clean, the first thing our contact warned us was that we'd have no cell phone service, as if we were merely an office in an out-of-way location and not in the mines. She said jokingly that we should download our music to our phones if we wanted to whistle while we worked. She stressed, less jokingly, that every room had at least one landline. Chillingly, she reminded us that cordless phones likely wouldn't work if we lost power. She showed us the office that led to the supply room, the supply room that led to the warehouse, the warehouse that led to the showroom. The exterior walls remained the stark, white-painted limestone of the mines, juxtaposed with the box-lit cubicles and desk plants that we jarringly realized were all made of plastic. The entire property sat heavily in our minds over the following summer. The office asked for cleaning more frequently than an office of that size usually would, and my friend and I almost immediately figured out why. Every evening, after all the office staff left for the night, we made a game of figuring out what on each desk had been used that day. 
Almost everywhere else, this would be a puzzling, if not downright impossible task. In the mines, though, there's the fine white limestone dust to leave us perfect clues. There's no getting rid of the dust. It falls from the limestone above to the drop ceiling they'd installed to hide the ugly air ducts and lights and phone lines. Sometimes the blanket of dull white powder would return before we'd even finished cleaning the office. My friend and I never looked at the dust a second time. We didn't need to know if anything had been touched while we'd been cleaning in another room. At first, we split up in order to clean more efficiently. But a person can only ask their coworker if they'd moved the supplies so many times before it began to wear on the psyche. Even while cleaning together, even while never leaving each other's sight, we would find doors shut that we'd left open. Lights off that we'd purposely left on. Doors into the mine proper left wide open that we'd carefully, tediously left shut and deadbolted behind us. Each time we'd open the closed door, we'd turn on the light, we'd shut and lock and relock the door, and we'd go right back to work. Intrinsically, we knew that we shouldn't let it know that we'd noticed its presence. Instinctively, we knew that it was an it, not a who. We were at its mercy every moment we spent beneath the surface. One night, the showroom floor was dirtier than either of us had expected. There was no way around it. Someone had to go back for a change of mop water. We nearly left together. But to admit that we wouldn't, couldn't, be alone in that place was to tear the flimsy narrative of two chatty friends wanting some conversation at work into pieces. Even though she's younger, my coworker always felt very maternal. As the guy with the colored hair and the combat boots, I assumed that it was my time-honored duty to go and get the mop water in the spooky cave. It only felt right. Lock the door behind me, I told her, barely even whispering as I rolled the wheeled yellow bucket over the threshold. It was the most we'd acknowledged the strangeness, and I saw her look both validated and horrified while I stepped out into the warehouse. I'll knock. I didn't leave until I watched her lock the door through the glass. The warehouse ceiling hadn't been covered by plaster tiles. There were no fluorescent lights dangling haphazardly from the rock like in the hallways. In the warehouse, the ceilings were too high for that sort of thing. The only source of light came from the massive spotlights mounted to the enormous limestone pillars that supported the cavity carved into the rock. Between the beams, the penumbra seemed to be gobbled greedily by the dark, leaving pockets of the blackest velvet, broken only by another flickering spotlight. The wheels of the bucket squealed, likely never having been oiled, and the sound echoed cacophonously around the warehouse as I picked my way through the dizzyingly high stacks of products. Apparently they could stack cases as high as they wanted down here. As long as the cases on the bottom could structurally handle the weight, nothing as unpredictable as vibrations in the floor from traffic outside would cause the cases to shift. We were far too deep for that. The walk from the showroom to the utility sink couldn't have been that far. But the way I needed to turn and wind through the labyrinthine stacks of plastic-wrapped cardboard boxes made it feel as though I'd been walking for hours. My knees wobbled as though I'd ran a marathon while the hose burbled steaming hot water into the bucket. I almost regretted not bringing my headphones. Part of me wanted to ignore the preternatural silence of the mines. Another part of me needed to know if anything broke it beyond the sounds of the bucket filling and my heart pounding in my throat. I turned off the water and immediately made an about-face back into the warehouse. There seemed to be a tension building in the air. If you've ever been nearby when lightning strikes, you'll know what I'm talking about. The air crackles, hums, buzzing with the knowledge of an untapped well of unspent energy and the threat that it could be tapped at any given moment. A flash of movement made me stop abruptly, 
nearly sloshing the water all over the floor and my feet. It was gray, like the shirt my friend had been wearing. For sanity's sake, I ignored how tall it was. I ignored how fast it was. The only other person in the whole office was my friend, so that's who it had to be, right? Right? I called her name as I followed the echoing sounds of footsteps through the aisles of towering boxes, but she never replied. I got myself lost, turned around in the rows and rows of nondescript products and limestone pillars. I only caught glimpses of whoever, whatever, I was chasing. And with each glimpse, I became more and more sure that it wasn't my co-worker. A long, sickly thin arm spindly legs, the flash of a torso hunched forward and far, far too thin to be human, all gray and leathery, almost as though its skin had been tanned by the sun for years before it ended up in the sunless corridors of the mines. I don't know how long I followed it through the warehouse, but by the time I realized that I could only hear one set of footsteps and I hadn't caught a glimpse of it for several turns, my feet ached and my mouth and hair were full of limestone dust. I picked a direction and kept walking the squeaky yellow bucket in tow. Logic stated that I'd either hit a wall or the opening back to the showroom, and it was better than waiting around for the thing to come back. I did make it back to the showroom. I knocked on the glass doors and shook limestone dust out of my hoodie and hair as my friend unlocked the deadbolt. Did you sprint the whole way back? That only took like five minutes, she joked, holding the door open for me to drag the bucket in. I stared back at her confused as she locked the door behind me. When I didn't answer, she took a closer look at me, at the dust still covering my clothes and face, at the mop bucket now only half full of ice-cold water, gone milky with limestone. We didn't finish mopping the floor. After that night, I began taping our walks through the bare limestone tunnels back to the car. I had nightmares of disappearing without a trace, and hoped that I would have a chance to drop my phone on the ground should anything happen. My friend and I agreed that we wouldn't talk about it, but we both knew that we weren't alone in the mines. By the end of that summer, we'd been fired. The complaint? We were neglecting our dusting duties. Every morning when the office folks would come into work, apparently there were hundreds of handprints left in the fine white limestone dust that covered the surfaces and the glass doors leading into the mines. They knew as much as we did. My friend and I knew the handprints in question. We knew them intimately and uncomfortably as we wiped them from the inside of our cars every time we made to leave the mines after a shift cleaning. We were very familiar with the long, three-fingered handprints as they decorated the windows and doors inside and out every night. We never discussed why we would drive through the car wash on the way home from work. We weren't all that upset when we got fired in the end. People still haven't stopped asking if we saw the telescope mirror that had been stored in the mines in the mid-90s. Yes, the air quotations are usually audible. They make swishing noises, if you're curious. The highway had been shut down for hours, and the mirror was so delicate that not even ambulances were permitted to pass it. It had a full guard, but even so, I guess a few of the locals got a good look at it before it disappeared back into the mines. Not only was the telescope never built, but the mirror never left. That might be just as well. The locals that saw it say they'd never seen a mirror look like that, so I'm not sure what good it'd do in a telescope anyway. There's very little that I'm sure about when it comes to the mines. I'm not sure what else is down there. I'm not sure why we'd sometimes see heavy doors, guarded and leading even deeper into the darkness. And I'm not sure why security is so heavily armed. There's one thing I'm certain about, though. Whatever's down there, it sure as hell isn't one of ours.
In our final tale, we meet a woman dealing with a competitor. It's tough enough in the corporate world when a man wants to squeeze his way into a woman's territory, let alone a line of work which is much more solitary in nature. And in this tale, shared with us by author Percy Morgan, the woman discovers her competition is, in the most literal way, rather cutthroat. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio, Jesse Cornett, and Matthew Bradford. So watch where you work and mind your own business, as it were. You don't want to impose upon the May Queen. Salome did not hear him. Instead, she smelled him from miles away, and she allowed her feet to carry her towards him. Salome had been deep in her forest when he arrived. It was not her season, and she had not been hunting. She carried her hand scythe with her in case he meant her harm. She only knew that he was like her and that she felt the need to go to him. Salome found him on the lonely country road that wound through the west of her forest. His car was a blinding red, assaulting her eyes through the stark bare trees. Leaves crunched beneath her bare feet as she approached him. The autumn sky was a flat steel gray above their heads, reflecting off her visitor's sunglasses. Salome stopped a few yards back from the road, studying him. He was dressed in oil-stained jeans, a wrinkled white t-shirt, and an ancient leather jacket. He was white, with messy brown waves curling over his ears, and gave her a lazy, lopsided grin. Hey. Salome pursed her lips. Ah, he spoke. You're Salome Ness, right? He pushed off his obnoxiously red car and walked closer. Must be. Dig the scythe. Dig the whole forest cult thing, too. He stopped, not entering the tree line. His face and neck were covered in a webbing of different scars. Various ages, various sizes. He jerked a scarred thumb in the direction he'd come from. South, down the road. My name's Harley Durant. I'm setting up shop at that abandoned gas station, about 15 miles back. I figured that wouldn't cut off your supply line. Salome had started shaking her head. She walked closer and gestured with her arms and her scythe. He'd understand. Their kind always understood each other. Oh, that's too close, huh? Harley was still smiling at her. A couple of his teeth were missing, replaced with gold ones. Well, maybe I want to be close to you. Salome narrowed her eyes. Unless they were in a pair or the vanishingly rare family pack, their kind were solitary creatures. They preferred miles and miles of empty distance between each other. Harley tried to come closer shuffling across the cracked roadway. Your final girls said that you were beautiful. But wow, 
He looked her up and down, tongue darting out between his lips a few times. We're never beautiful. Salome arched an eyebrow. Yes, she was pretty. She'd inherited her mother's loose cloud of natural curls and bright brown eyes, and her father had lent her his freckles and the dark auburn of her hair. But why was he talking to her final girls? I was thinking that come spring, maybe you and I could, uh... He arched his eyebrows at her. His tongue ran over his teeth again. You know. Yes, she did know. Salome pointed her scythe at him and scowled. She considered baring her teeth, but that was too animalistic for her tastes. She gestured for him to leave. If he didn't want this to turn into a fight, he'd listen. Come on. You're a female. The only one I've seen in ten years. And your season is spring. He got even closer to her, shadows of the bare branches slicing across his face. He couldn't come further without entering the trees. If he did that without an invitation, she'd kill him. And they both knew it. You're fertile. You can have kids, Salome. Don't you want to use this gift you have? Salome shook her head again and looked away. She had no interest in mating, in producing some twisted creature that would only exist to bring suffering. She brought plenty of suffering on her own. So she turned and started walking away. She had nothing more to communicate to him. The gas station he was referring to was a few miles outside the edge of her forest, and she had no grounds to chase him away. So long as he did not prevent her from taking her fill of blood, he could stay in that tiny lair and pine for her as long as he liked. I'll be a great mate. Come on, Salome. We'll make the best little monster. (laughs) Salome ignored him continuing to walk over the dry leaf litter. There was birdsong in the trees still, and as Harley's voice faded, she began to hear the rustle of rabbits and the scurry of field mice. Harley's proposition should not have been surprising to her. Most slashers were men, and even when the rare woman took up a weapon and sought to rain down artful terror, their solitude and questionable status as alive prevented birth. But Salome had a season. Salome's kills always came in late spring, and the season's magic would let her bear children, if she so chose. As Harley had said, she was a rare creature, and she supposed it was only natural for her semi-brethren to seek out reproduction. Salome closed her heavy cabin door behind her and began the work of throwing the dozen rusted locks. When the cult that had been her origin still lived and worshipped in these woods, this had been her family's cabin. Her mother had added more locks every time another child went missing. She had no way of knowing that those who were hurting her people would not be stopped by locks. With no one to hunt, Salome returned to her other work. She still followed the gods of her mother and father, and she still had rites to perform and offerings to make. Salome sat at her father's scarred and sagging desk and resumed crafting the cork doll she had been making. 
The doll had been painted in iridescent blue-green with nail polish taken from a victim's pocket and had twin wire antennae dangling from its lopsided head. As she worked, Salome wondered vaguely if her mother had known what her daughter was. If she had, would she have chosen not to bring Salome forth? Frown deepening, Salome began to shove the bent wire wings into the doll's back. Harley spoke as if she was obligated to have children simply because she could. Her cult leader, Great Father, had had similar views. This tiny cabin had held four children and her parents because of it. Maybe he thought that if his people had too many children to manage, they would mind less when he and his inner circle pilfered some. Salome had minded. So had the forest. Salome jabbed her pale brown thumb with a pin and squeezed the pad with the fingers of her other hand. The blood welled up and she smeared it liberally over the cork doll. This was for the god of bugs. And the god of bugs liked blood. Salome undid her door's locks and stepped outside. The sun was starting to go down and there was a light wind now. It blew cold against her skin as she left the little cluster of buildings her cult had lived in. The snow would be here in a month or two. She needed to begin rationing her food more carefully. She took her scythe with her again, out of habit instead of fear. She was the only horror in these woods, even if some oddball man was starting to sniff around her territory. She nailed the cork doll to a tree that held a hibernating wasp's nest. Before she had followed Great Father into the woods, Salome's mother had studied insects. Her specialty had been wasps. She had said there were two kinds, solitary and social. Social wasps, like those in this nest, lived in colonies with a queen who made eggs. But solitary wasps, much like Salome and Harley's kind, only came together to make the next generation. Salome rather liked wasps. She liked most insects. Perhaps that was why the god of bugs had been the one to speak to her all those decades ago. Winter made her sad, because it meant there would be many months of not seeing any of her tiny, crawling friends. She wondered if Harley hunted in winter, or if he killed year-round. Banishing any thought of him, Salome began the trek back to her cabin. Perhaps she could read her mother's heavy textbooks or curling science journals for a while, see if she could learn more about wasps. Winter came, a great blowing white that buried her forest and made the sky sag closer. Salome spent as much time as she could in her cabin, reading, crafting dolls, waiting for the snow to melt. Her mother's scientific materials were hard to understand, but she was learning. With no one to chastise her for damaging the pages, she was free to underline and circle words she didn't know. Salome slashed lines in between the syllables, until they were in small enough pieces to make sense. In times like these, she missed her mother, and her father, and her siblings. But not too much. The forest had needed to be purified. And they, like all of her May kills, were one with the forest now. Harley was hunting that winter. She didn't know how she knew that, but she did. She wondered if his victims were all stumbling across his nest, or if he took that blood-red car and stalked them. 
if, come spring, she found that his new lair was preventing her rightful share from reaching her, she'd cut out his tongue and eyes. The thought made her smile. Her cult had not celebrated Christmas. Salome barely understood what it was. Neither had they had birthdays. The only gift-giving process she engaged in was giving the cork dolls and other offerings to the forest's gods. Harley, however, seems to have maintained that particular human habit. Salome discovered this when she opened her door one freezing morning and found footprints cutting through the snowfall in her camp. Salome, cursing herself for not knowing the person was there until now, ran outside and followed the tracks. Blood was speckled inside them, bright red blinding against the undisturbed white. After roughly ten minutes of jogging through the icy silence of her forest, she found the source. A white man in a puffy green coat was limping through the trees, and Salome could hear him sobbing softly. She didn't hide her footsteps letting the snow crunch under her boots. The man whirled around, and she saw a still-bleeding wound on his head. No! Salome buried her scythe in the flesh above his hip. He howled in pain and horror, and she retched it hard across his gut, towards his navel. More blood sprayed, more red over white, the downy feathers of his torn jacket spilling from the ruined fabric. Salome wrenched her scythe back with a sucking squelch, and he went to his hands and knees. Please, no, not like this. Salome grabbed his dirty blonde hair with her hand and hauled his head up. His face was growing even paler from blood loss, and his eyes were wet. Salome raised her scythe, intending to open his throat. Instead, she spied something that had escaped her notice before. A folded piece of paper pinned to the collar of his coat. Scrawled on it in lazy red letters was Salome, with a loopy little heart beside it. Her nose wrinkled. Please, we don't have to do this. Please, miss. Salome let go of his hair and snatched the note from his coat. She stuffed it into the pocket of her ankle-length skirt and followed through with her intention to cut the man's throat. The last of his blood emptied down the front of his body, and he died with a wet rattle on his lips. Salome took hold of his ankles and began dragging him through the snow. Under the iron of his blood and the acrid reek of the urine his corpse was leaking, Salome smelled something else. Copious amounts of cheap, strong alcohol. She knew the scent well. Like most of her kind, her kills skewed young, and that was the stench she'd follow to their parties and campsites. Back at her camp, Salome wrenched open the rusted doors that sealed off the root cellar beneath Great Father's cabin. She lifted the man's corpse up to sling him over her shoulder and carried him down into the dark. The smell down here should be horrendous, but it was simply air to her nose. She stacked the corpse up with the dozen of others down there, her off-season kills. She'd loot the bodies periodically, for cloth, for bones, for the odds and ends in their pockets. Sometimes, when she took prisoners, she'd lock them down here. She'd sit at the locked and chained doors and listen to their muffled screams. After slamming the doors back into place, Salome stood for a moment, thinking... 
A kill was always good, but it seemed Harley had sent her this one. She took the note from her pocket and unfolded it. Salome. A car broke down near my nest. Four of them inside. This one wasn't my type. So I drowned him in booze until he passed out and I dumped him near your territory. Figured you could use a pick-me-up for the holidays. The note ended in another heart. Salome considered whether to be gracious or offended. She had never had this happen before, nor did she know if this was typical for how one slasher wooed another. She supposed it was similar to how spiders courted. Finally, she decided to be pleased with the gift, and not track down Harley and tear him to pieces for implying she was too weak to hunt her own prey. Two more gifts came for her that winter. The first was only two weeks after the man in the green jacket. A short, athletic college student, dressed for cross-country skiing. She was named Suki, according to the ID that tumbled from her pocket at one point. Salome had to chase her for nearly an hour before felling her with a sharp cut across the lower spine. Harley sent another note with this one. You must be getting awfully bored all by yourself. Hope this helps. Suki's straight black hair paired well with the green dress made from the older man's jacket, making a lovely doll for the goddess of evergreens. When she gifted the doll at the foot of a mighty pitch pine tree, she grudgingly included Harley in her prayers to the goddess. The final gift was another middle-aged one, a man with thinning hair and dark eyes. He was black like her mother. Salome cut his hamstrings and let him crawl for a long time before slicing him open, chin to waist. This note was just a big heart with an S plus H inside. No one else entered her forest that winter. Or, if they did, they escaped her notice. If they had entered in spring, she'd have known at once, and her scythe would have carved them into pieces within hours. The seasons shifted once again. Spring was stirring in the air and in the earth, and Salome rejoiced. The insects would return, and in their wake would come her kills. Months bled together for her, but she could taste the difference between March, April, and May. During the brief 13 years they had had together before her unfortunate but necessary death, Salome's mother had done her best to teach her daughter manners— Those teachings sometimes stirred in her briefly, and Salome felt them now. Maybe Harley deserved a thank you. The snow melting, Salome began searching for materials. During that wet march, she received no gifts from Harley. Instead, she scented him on the air one day and found him at the same spot on the road. He called to her when she became visible through the trees. Hey. Salome nodded. He had a new scar on his face, cutting his right cheek from temple to jawline. She could see the sloppy stitches that he'd clearly done himself. She touched her own cheek and raised her eyebrows in a question. Ah, this? Nothing. One of the others with the last guy I sent you got in a lucky swipe with a busted bottle. My fault. (laughs) 
can't resist leaving weapons around for them. He grinned at her, gold teeth catching the weak sunlight. Makes it so much more fun. Salome took a longer, slower look at him. He was shorter than she'd noticed before, only five or six inches taller than her. In addition to the fresh scar on his cheek, his car seemed to have suffered some damage. Scratches in the paint and dents in the back door. Salome met his gaze as best she could, given the sunglasses that still covered his eyes, and removed an object from her skirt pocket. A small owl skull on a thin leather strap. The bird had gotten caught in one of the traps she used to feed herself, and she'd scraped its bones clean. Shuffling over the wet ground, she stopped near the edge of the road and held it out to Harley. Oh, that for me? Harley reached out and took the gift. His rough fingers brushed over hers as he did so. Thanks, Salome. You warming up to me, girl? Salome scowled at him, and he grinned, clearly amused. So you like the presents? I'll try to keep them coming. Since, uh, you never leave. Right? Salome shook her head. That was against her rules. She needed to stay. Let her prey come to her. Your special day coming up? Salome both shrugged and nodded. May was her month, but none of its individual days held any power for her. Damn. I don't know how you do it. Just stay in one place and spend most of the year dormant. <laughs> He laughed and shook his head. I'd go nuts. Salome raised her eyebrows again. That answered both of her questions. Harley was a prowler, and he had no off-season. But now she had another. Salome gestured down the roadway, and then at his car. Oh, the nest? Yeah, it's taken some getting used to. A lot of getting used to. But... You're here. He leaned in towards her. And I want to make lots of monsters with you. Salome wrinkled her nose at him, and he laughed again. (laughs) A sharp crack of sound through her woods. A strange emotion filled her when she saw how easily he understood her. Perhaps she was lonelier than she thought. The next time she saw him, it was late April. The smell of May was in the air, and she was getting excited. Harley could tell. He let out a loud wolf whistle when she jogged out of the woods to meet him. His hands were stuffed into his pockets. The owl skull hung around his neck, resting against his chest. You are glowing. Springtime's doing you good, Salome. Salome gave him a smile. The first one she'd had for another person in many years. Harley returned it, but his faded quickly. Listen, I'm going to clear out for a bit. Salome's mouth twisted into a frown instantly. She shook her head, and Harley laughed softly. (laughs) What? You don't want me to go? No, she didn't. It's just for May. 
Harley talked much more than their people usually did, and Salome was fairly certain most of them were not even capable of laughter. I'll be back in June. It's just to give you space. Salome thought about pouting. She'd grown used to knowing Harley was nearby, and she found herself disliking the idea of him being gone. However, it would be nice to be alone for her month. Reluctantly, she let him leave, and didn't even scowl when he blew her a kiss. Harley's absence was unpleasant, certainly. She'd been able to sense him, sense the invisible lines between their territories since the day he'd arrived. With him gone, she could no longer deny the facts. She was lonely. But then, May came. In a wave of sunlight and warmth, soothing the strange new ache in her heart. The earth woke up, coming alive with small animals, new plant life, and insects, glorious bugs, millions of them, singing their songs, building their hives, and filling the forest with their eggs. Salome waited with bated breath. Whatever wicked power was behind things like her and Harley and the rest of their kind did not always deliver to her in May, but she needn't have worried. A group of ten college students here for an early summer camping trip. Five men, five women. They arrived in a small troop of cars, all hormones and impulsivity. They set up camp roughly a 20-minute walk from her lair. Salome thanked every god in her forest, and she got to work. A young, hot-blooded couple that had spent the day bickering in between frantic rounds of sex were her first of the season. She drove her scythe into the man's neck from behind while his girlfriend was still screaming at the sight of her. The girl had tried to crawl away, sobbing, Mayday killer! Mayday killer! Until Salome caught up to her and sliced her throat. She was in heaven. The thrill had never been this deep or this pure. The next three died in a frenzy of blood and gore, practically tripping over her when they came to look for their friends. One of the women and two more men. One of them called her May Day Killer as well. Salome almost wished she could speak, just so she could ask them why they came here if they clearly knew who she was. No matter, she knew the answer. They came here so she could kill them. Salome reached their camp, and the others scattered into the trees. The slowest two died in quick succession, and Salome gave chase to the survivors. She wondered if they could see the glee in her eyes, or if her face was still hollow and empty. This was a special year. Salome had no survivors, not even a final girl to spread her myth. Normally, Salome would be disappointed by this, but she had at least five final girls to her name, and she was too high on their spilled blood to mind. As the sun rose, Salome began to bury her kills. The kills of her season were for her insect god, and each one was to be buried at the foot of a tree adorned with one of her cork dolls. Salome had just finished burying the very last one, a beautiful young woman with long blonde tresses, when she heard something. A voice, creaking and alien, that she had not heard in many years, not since it had told her of great father's crimes, not since she had picked up her first scythe and visited the forest's blind vengeance upon Great Father and his unwitting accomplishments. Not since she had stopped being human. 
Salome sat atop the blonde's grave, listening with reverence as her insect god whispered its new commands to her. Salome smiled. Harley was back only a week later, and Salome was waiting for him by the side of the road. Harley parked the car and got out, the owl's skull swinging on its cord. Salome licked her lips. He looked beautiful. Hey, girl. Miss me? Salome reached up to the wooden buttons of her dress top and began undoing them, staring at him. Harley's grin slowly spread across his face as Salome's dress fell to the forest floor. She had been lonely, and her god had a new plan for her. And accepting Harley's advances would solve both issues. Besides, she was curious about this new type of fun. Later that night, curled in Salome's parents' bed, Harley pressed a hand over her lower belly. So, what do you think it'll be? His breath tickled her skin, and Salome arched into his touch. Do you think it'll be furry? Or, or scaly? Or will it look human? Salome shook her head to all of it. She knew what it would look like. Her god had shown her. Soon, she would bring forth a great, buzzing wasp. A monstrosity with an iron-hard body and burning red eyes and a burrowing stinger. A demonic insect to stalk the wild places and bring fear to the humans all of them hunted. And that, Salome thought, would only be the first of the babies Harley would give her. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. 
The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.